The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. I'm expecting to see a meaningful change within one calendar day. If they're not better at day two, my thought is not, oh, I need to give a longer course of therapy. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This podcast focuses on the problem of antibiotic duration. The article that we're studying is Excess Antibiotic Treatment Duration and Adverse Events in Patients Hospitalized with Pneumonia, a multi-hospital cohort study that appeared in the annals July 9th, 2019. To discuss it, we have one of the authors of the editorial in that same issue, Duration of Antibiotic Therapy, Shorter is Better. Dr. Brad Spellberg, who is Chief Medical Officer at L.A. County University of Southern California Medical Center, an infectious disease expert, co-authored the fine editorial. He has written extensively about shorter-duration antibiotics. I believe you'll learn a great deal about the appropriate duration of antibiotics in pneumonia and why it's such an important problem. Thank you for listening. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. The issue uh, that your editorial addresses and that you've addressed in previous articles seems to be one of the most important advances in antibiotic stewardship uh, over the last decade. Could you sort of go over this whole idea of shorter duration antibiotics and the types of studies and then specifically talk about community-acquired pneumonia and hospital uh, or healthcare-associated pneumonia. Sure. Thank you so much for, for having me on. It was really Lou Rice, who at the time was the chief of medicine at the Case Western VA and is now the executive chair of medicine at Brown, who 11 years ago now first called out the need for medical practitioners to rethink the duration of antibiotic therapies that we traditionally use. And when you sort of go back in the literature and ask, well, why is it that we give seven days and 14 days or even in the past 21 days of antibiotics for standard infections? The real answer is that we do it because there are seven days in a week. There's no data behind traditional antibiotic durations at all. It's just a matter of convenience that there are seven days in a week, so we pick multiples of those seven days. But what Lou pointed out was that at that time, people had begun doing randomized control trials comparing shorter courses of therapy to longer. And since then, we've had a number of additional trials published with two very small exceptions in the pediatric space. Every single randomized control trial that has compared longer therapy to shorter therapy for a variety of different types of acute bacterial infections has found no difference in efficacy. So this is, by my count, approximately 45 randomized control trials dealing with diseases that include all types of pneumonia, skin infections, 
bone infections, urinary tract infections, abdominal infections, neutropenic fever even. And every single one of those randomized control trials has shown shorter therapy results in equivalent clinical outcomes in terms of cure, but many of them have shown better outcomes in terms of reducing adverse events and decreasing the emergence of resistance on therapy. That's a great background. Let's talk specifically about this uh, recent Annals article that came out in July, Excess Antibiotic Treatment Duration and Adverse Effects in Patients Hospitalized with Pneumonia. In order to set this up, it's worthwhile for everyone in the audience to understand what the current guidelines and current data say about duration of antibiotics. Let's do community-acquired pneumonia first. You know, I think that the guidelines for community-acquired pneumonia are being revised, and, I, and, and they're really out of date. What I would rather focus on is the data. So by our count, there have been eight randomized control trials comparing durations of therapy between three and five days for community-acquired pneumonia to durations of seven to 14 days. And I remember when I was in medical school, it was at least 14 days. All eight of those trials have shown three is no different than seven and five is no different than 10 to 14. In addition to that, we have a very interesting post hoc analysis of a randomized control trial that compared ceftriaxone to daptomycin for community-acquired pneumonia. This was done before it was realized that daptomycin is inactivated by pulmonary surfactant. It was actually the result of that trial that showed that daptomycin was clearly inferior in therapy for pneumonia, that people discovered dapto was inactivated uh, by pulmonary surfactant. So what they did is they went back and they looked at the patients enrolled in that trial, and they asked the question, did people who got one dose of ceftriaxone before they were randomized have a difference in outcome? And the answer is they had a marked improvement in clinical cure in the daptomycin arm, which means that one dose of ceftriaxone cures a substantial proportion of patients with community-acquired pneumonia. I think that underscores how badly we've been over-treating for this disease. Okay, so this study was trying to look at the how many people got excess treatment and what did that mean to the patients. So maybe you could go over sort of the methods of the study and uh, start to get into the results of what they actually found in this very large study from the state of Michigan? Sure. I think the, the first question people may ask is, if we have eight randomized control trials showing that shorter therapy is as effective as longer for acquired pneumonia, and two, showing the same thing for ventilator-associated pneumonia, why do we need a cohort study? And I would say the answer to that is, when you enroll in a randomized controlled trial, you're conducting a very carefully controlled experiment with very rigorous entry criteria. And the question you can then ask is, do those results extrapolate? Can we go from efficacy to effectiveness? If you look at a larger cohort study that isn't as restrictive, do you see the same thing? And indeed, that's what this was. This was a study of 43 hospitals that participate in a network of QI safety in Michigan, looking at nearly 6,500 patients who had pneumonia that was community onset. Most of it was community acquired. Some of it was what we used to call healthcare associated, but it was all onset in the community. None of it was nosocomial. And they used a very complicated definition for what an appropriate duration of therapy was. 
But at the end of the day, if you received more than seven days, generally speaking, that is unnecessary and inappropriate. And frankly, that's very conservative. As I mentioned, for mild community-acquired ammonia, three days is clearly adequate based on several randomized control trials. And even for moderate to severe, five days is adequate. So this is a conservative estimate of overtreatment, and that's an important point. And so then they went on to evaluate what proportion of patients received, quote unquote, excess therapy, and their results were two-thirds. And again, I would say that that's conservative because they used a conservative definition of short-course therapy. Now, interestingly, most of the excess therapy was, this is 90% or so, was due to prescribing unnecessarily long oral step-down courses at discharge from hospital. I don't think this is actually that surprising. We know that time pressure physicians are under to get people out of the hospital. So the majority of the course overall is step-down. People don't, get in the, don't stay in the hospital for two weeks for pneumonia anymore. Um, so I think it's not entirely surprising that most of the excess was at discharge. And I think the important takeaway to that is you start by going, do I need more than five days therapy? And for most patients, you won't. And then you say, well, I've already given two and a half or three days in the hospital. How much more? Do I, I don't really need to give five more at discharge. I think that's one of the real key takeaways from this study. The final point that I sort of just make at the top level is consistent with the efficacy data from eight prior randomized control trials of community-acquired pneumonia and two prior randomized control trials of ventilator-associated pneumonia. Giving longer courses of therapy was not associated with an improvement in mortality, it did not decrease readmissions, and it did not decrease emergency room visits. What it did do was increase harm. For each a day of excess duration of therapy by multivariate analysis, there was a 5% increase in the odds of a patient reported antibiotic-associated adverse event. So not only was longer therapy not better than shorter therapy, longer therapy was worse than shorter therapy for our patients. As I read this article, and I sort of compare this to the, uh, the article from Spain about a year or two ago, where they, they also looked at goal-directed therapy approximately five days if they're stable at three days versus whatever the doctor wanted to do. And in both of those, there's more harm when you give antibiotics for a longer amount of time. And that makes sense. That really raises a very interesting question of the diffusion of information to us as physicians. We've heard this throughout my career. I've heard the problem of we get new information and yet it takes us a long time to absorb it. What is your opinion on this? And, and why do docs keep treating pneumonia for a longer period of time or treating cellulitis for a longer period of time when the data are becoming more and more clear all the time? No, it's a great question. Um, and I think the first thing we should do is not, you know, not imply that we're beating up on docs. The, the reality is that medicine is a very conservative profession. The core ethos of our profession is nearly 3,000 years old and hasn't changed during those 3,000 years. When something is baked into medical practice and is taught for generations, it is going to take time to change course. And I always go back to, the, I think the thing that we need to remember is what Osler used to tell people, 50% of everything I'm teaching you is wrong. The only problem is I don't know which 50%. In order for us 
to diffuse this kind of practice changing information. We need thought leaders, we need guidelines, we need regulators, we need payers. So I think, what, why are payers willing to pay us for longer courses of therapy? So if we're gonna ask clinicians, why is it taking them so long to change their practice habits? I think even more pointedly, we need to ask those that govern the practice of medicine. Why is it that agencies that govern healthcare so, for example, CMS, are taking so long to encourage or implement short course therapy as part of hospital regulations on antibiotic stewardship? Why is the Food and Drug Administration continuing to require companies to do normal courses of therapy, traditional courses in pivotal trials as compared to short courses? Why do payers cover the cost of traditional durations of therapy when evidence shows shorter is just as effective and safer? And finally, why do our national societal guidelines continue to recommend traditional treatment durations? If regulatory agencies and payers and, and professional societies start pushing short course, physicians will adapt. So let's give the uh, listening audience an outline of what you would recommend. So you're on the wards, a patient gets admitted with community-acquired pneumonia. What do you tell your house staff and how do you take care of that patient how do you decide the duration? Uh, and let's do both types of pneumonia. For community-acquired pneumonia requiring hospitalization, my baseline course is five days. For outpatient mild pneumonia, I'm comfortable with three, you know, assuming that it's fairly mild. And to me, that's conservative, right? I, I, I think most of them probably could be treated with three. For ventilator-associated pneumonia, seven days. Now, do I know that I need seven? No, I suspect five would be enough. I just don't have a trial that compares five to seven. One of the really important points here, well, I'll make two really important points. One is that there is this belief that if you're still having symptoms, you still need antibiotics, and that belief is wrong. Antibiotics kill bacteria. Your symptoms are caused by the inflammatory response to the bacteria. Even after all the bacteria are dead, you will still have symptoms for days because it's going to take time for your lungs to clean the inflammation that's in your airways out. The second important point is this is not intended. Short course therapy, the mantra that, we're, that I've been pushing shorter is better, is not intended to be proscriptive. It's intended to reset the baseline. So people say to me all the time, well, you're telling me that I can't prolong a couple of days if I'm nervous about my patient, and I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is the baseline is five, not 14. If you feel that you need to prolong for a couple of days because you're worried there's more bacteria in there, you're the treating physician. You get to make that decision. I'm not trying to make the perfect be the enemy of the good, but I do think people should reset the baseline to shorter, and they should remember you're going to have symptoms for days after all the bacteria are dead. As I've read this literature, most patients are, have improved a great deal in one, two, or three days. Are there any red flags that you see or that you recommend to people that say, okay, we've gotten to the second, third day. Our plan was five days, but this makes me nervous. So what are the things that make you nervous? Well, I'll tell you honestly, Bob, I completely agree with you. In fact, on ID consults, 
what I'm looking for is a change in biomarkers in 24 hours. You know, what, what biomarkers? Whichever ones the patients have. Fever, leukocytosis, hypoxia, tachypnea, whatever symptoms and signs they have, I'm expecting to see a, a meaningful change within one calendar day. And here's the thing. If I don't, if they're not better at day two, my thought is not, oh, I need to give a longer course of therapy. My thought, number one, I have the wrong diagnosis. Because if there's not an, a, a appreciable improvement clinically to adequate antibiotic therapy, that's extremely unusual for an acute bacterial infection. Number one thought, you got the wrong diagnosis. Number two thought, you've got pus under pressure somewhere. You've got something that needs to be drained somewhere. Maybe there's an empyema that you haven't found. And then the number three thought comes last, which is, do I have resistance? That actually turns out to be very rare clinically in the United States for acquired pneumonia. We can talk about lab resistance. That's not important. The question is, is there a high level of acquired pneumonia resistance to the antibiotics we use? And in the United States, the answer is clinically no. If they're bacteremic, maybe, but in non-bacteremic pneumonia, no. I love what you just said. One of the things I've told the house staff for about the last 10 years is that acquired pneumonia is the label is misused about 25 to 33% of the time. A quarter to a third of the time, they have something else. And you really define very nicely, if they're not better by two days, we better start looking for another diagnosis. Otherwise, we're, we're going to have a very simple five-day course of antibiotics. And as you said, that may be a little too much. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that's a critical point. If their patients are not getting better, by 48 hours, you really do need to look for an alternative diagnosis and or some nidus of infection that has not been, you haven't done source control yet. The other point that I'll make is in the 1920s, the large initial databases on pneumococcal pneumonia began to be published. And at that time, very invasive methods were used to make a micro biological diagnosis. They would do transthoracic aspirates. They'd stick a needle through your chest wall into the lung. They would do transtracheal aspirates. And at that point, the famous studies by a guy named Bulawa showed that 95% of acquired pneumonia was pneumococcal. In recent years, and we could debate why, we have theories, multiple studies that have used extremely sophisticated molecular methods have found that half of acquired pneumonia is viral. So even when you have community-acquired pneumonia, half the patients now are not going to respond to antibacterials because they don't have a bacterial infection. They have a viral infection. We really have been grossly over-treating, particularly in the modern era, we have pneumococcal vaccines and H-flu vaccines, where the, bacteria, the frequency of bacteria causing these infections is just a lot lower. Well, that's great. Let's, let's finish by me throwing out a controversial issue. I've been a member of the Performance Measurement Committee at ACP for a long time, and over and over we see performance measures that are advocated for underuse, people not giving statins or people not getting a hemoglobin A1C low enough. One of the things that we've always talked about is overuse performance measures. You talked about government regulations. If there were was an overuse performance measure for community-acquired pneumonia and uh, hospitals got penalized for giving antibiotics too long, we might see a change. Do you think that's too radical a thought? No, actually, I think, in fact, we Dave Gilbert, John Bartlett, and I put that into a New England Journal of Medicine article in 2013. So 
the, the analogy that we made and that I think, Bob, you're bringing up, which I think is a great point. We had infection prevention departments in hospitals for decades, and they never prevented any infections because they had no authority. All of a sudden, pay-for-performance measures go into place related to hospital-acquired infections, and all of a sudden, the infection prevention departments gain all this teeth. The C-suite of the hospital says, whoa, 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 we're having a C-diff problem. It's making us look bad. It's costing us money. Let's give people authority to fix it. If we publicly reported antibiotic usage at the facility level, and maybe more controversially, maybe even at the provider level, and made those data publicly available, and then put pay-for-performance measures around systems that use less antibiotic daily doses per patient versus those that use more. I guarantee you that your stewardship team would be empowered by the C-suite of the hospital. You know who runs the hospitals now? You guys, all, your, your, your listeners all know this. It's the spine surgeons. Because when you go talk to the C-suite and say, hey, you know, we're having this problem with the spine surgeons, they say, oh, leave them alone. They bring in the money that floats the hospital. But if you flipped it around to a pay for performance measure around not overusing, they would say, wow, this is actually costing my hospital money and it's making me look bad. So boy, please go fix this and we will have your back when you go talk to the docs that are overusing antibiotics. I think that would be probably the single most effective way to decrease antibiotic usage nationally. Well, Brett, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. I think this is a very important article that the Annals published, and I love your editorial. If you could just give one more shout out to your mentor and co-author, because the two of you are really doing a lot to raise awareness of this problem, and not just for community-acquired pneumonia, but for many of the other infections that you mentioned earlier in the podcast. Absolutely. I, I think this is the future of medicine, and I'm really grateful that you're helping us to get the word out. Well, thank you so much, and I hope everybody learned a lot. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This fascinating discussion with Dr. Spellberg focused primarily on antibiotic stewardship and the use of just the right duration of antibiotics. The study looks specifically at community-acquired pneumonia. The most important take-home message from this study is each extra day of antibiotics leads to side effects. So understanding the appropriate duration that we can give antibiotics really can help us use less antibiotics and therefore less complications for patients. The other important issue that Dr. Spellberg mentioned is what to do when it seems like the antibiotics aren't working. And he gave a very good explanation of when he starts thinking about an alternate diagnosis. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that it will make you think deeply about the inpatient and outpatient management of pneumonia. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. 
The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.